Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for another day of your grace and mercy. Uh, we thank you for the wonderful blessing of having the freedom to gather together around your word. Uh, we ask for a rich measure of your Holy Spirit to, to open our hearts, to our, our minds to understand your will and your love and hearts to believe it. And we also ask uh, your blessing on our country and our nation. You've given us a nation where we enjoy many freedoms. We ask that you would uh, protect those freedoms and grant us godly leaders and also uh, people who will um, rule in such a way as to uh, punish the evildoer and reward the good doer in our society and also give us opportunity to, to preach the gospel that will actually not just change action, but change hearts. We pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, uh, we just, you know, it's three days, two days removed from All Saints Day, three days removed from Reformation Day, also some would call it Halloween, also would call All, all Hallows Eve, you know, all the names. But we are thankful for the gospel message that our minister brought to the forefront uh, in the Reformation, or God used him to bring to the forefront the Reformation. So on the... Picture up top here on the screen, you'll see a lot of different players in the Reformation era, but especially in the middle, Martin Luther. Just thinking back to different movies that are out there on Luther, this does not exhaust them by any means, but some of the ones I may be more familiar with. Uh, 1953, Neil McGinnis, um, I remember watching that in grade school, black and white. You know, I think even we had the old reel, I want to remember, like going, like one of my early years, and then after that, the... the New Fandangle VHS. Um, and then uh, the one I don't really know about is the Stacy Keach one, but it says Luther, and I Googled it, and I guess it's, you know, 1974. 1983 was the one that everyone kind of disavowed, um, and that it's, you know, public domain on uh, the Internet, on YouTube, if you want to watch a good. It's actually not very bad. It's not a bad one. I, Jonathan Price, uh, famous British actor, um, but we watched that last year in class when we were doing our Reformation segment and uh, really actually kind of brought out some very nice Reformation themes, I thought. Uh, the one that was sponsored by Thrivent, I believe, was uh, Joseph Fiennes, 2003, probably in the grade school, the one that kids see the most, and that's uh, the Luther movie. Well done. Um, takes, through, takes them through, I think, 1530 in the Augsburg Confession. And then A Return to Grace, which was shown, I want to say, at Martin Luther College, also at uh, the local movie theater. Um, we had that, and some people reserved tickets and, and got in. And uh, there's this, the one we watched, The Return to Grace, and also uh, the PBS version. Um, so with this, uh, that was actually kind of cool because it, it showed the whole life of Luther, even up to his death, and also kind of a little bit of the aftermath of what happened after Luther died. Uh, so... Always a good watch, always, you know, bring out different themes of the Reformation, but even better to go to God's Word and also to see kind of the, the life of Luther and see how the Lord used such a person. As we go through, uh, you know, Reformation, it's good to remember the Scriptures uh, and what a blessing they are to us. Martin Luther, one of the things he did in his, what, 10 months at the Wartburg was translate the New Testament into the language of the people, into German, you know, one of his... One of the things maybe we don't think about all the time, but probably one of the greatest things that God used him to do um, beside giving free, re free course to the gospel was the translation of the New Testament into German, and then later the Old Testament into German. But we'll go with Ephesians 4, verse 14 to 15. Paul writes this letter to the believers in Ephesus, and he says that God gave you know, some to be pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, um, you know, to prepare God's people for works of service of the body of Christ may be built up. Let's read this together, if you don't mind. Uh, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Now, the toss back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by the, every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Do we have some of that going on today? All over. I mean, so much, so much good is on the internet and so much evil is on the internet and so much little false theologies, false doctrines. And so how do we prepare for that? Well, we're equipped by going into God's word. We have God-given ministers to equip us. How are they God-given? How are your pastors, teachers, staff ministers, God-given? 
Yeah, from the minister's side of it, that God would put in their hearts that desire to, to pursue the ministry, but then how are they actually put into the ministry? Who, by the call. Who calls? Yeah, the congregation, and then, Laura? The Holy Spirit. So the congregation is gifted by the Holy Spirit to call those from among them who have it in their heart, who have been trained, prepared, and qualified to then serve them, you know, in the public gospel ministry. And so really it's a call from the Holy Spirit through his church for ministers. How are they God-given? We kind of talked about how do they equip us? How do they equip us? How are you equipped by your ministers? Yeah. So the, the, same, the same armor they've been given through the Word of God and, and through that experience, too, with the Word of God, you know, they, they give also to those they serve. Annie? Yeah, absolutely. All the different avenues for teaching and, you know, for, for learning, whether it's in a, a group Bible study, whether it's in a Sunday morning worship, or it's in, you know, individual, you know, one-on-one counseling, whatever it might be, we have all these wonderful blessings that were built up um, in this. Um, how are they equipped? How are ministers equipped? Welcome, Deb. How are... Sit wherever, yeah. Oh, wait, this isn't the women's group. This is the... Yes, yes. I should explain that. Sorry, thank you. Thank, good question, good question. A legitimate question. Um, I'll explain it. Thank you, I forgot to explain it. Pastor Smith uh, was teaching through Daniel, and um, Pastor Smith and I have different styles, and also there may be a little bit different ability level when it comes to different things, and I recognize that in a wonderful way. Um, he had done the prep work for the lesson for today for Daniel, but he had Lily and Dane's funeral. You know, she went home to heaven, which is a wonderful, good thing, um, but he said, hey, do you want to teach my stuff on Daniel? And I thought, you know what? When I'm in your Bible class, Pastor Smith, I always enjoy, there's the, the valuable things on the screen, and then there's the other things that he gleaned from all his research, and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to be able to give all those things, I'd just be working through your slides, um, which would still be valuable and good, but how about, we'll take a break from Daniel for a week, you let me do something on the Reformation, and then you pick it up. So he said okay to that, so that's why we're doing Reformation, and it's uh, Reformation time, so I feel like we have to have not only a sermon on Reformation theme, but also a Bible study, which I think is appropriate, right? <laughs> so thank you for the question. I did not explain that. You're in the right place. In the right place. You're in God's house. You're in the right place. It's a good thing. Um, how are ministers equipped? How are ministers equipped? Yeah, so not only the same, you know, thing that they have been in God's Word, like, like Annie said, in Bible classes, in worship, but also they've gone on, you know, Aaron said it's in their hearts to pursue this, um, and then they get that extra training, uh, which is a wonderful blessing. Um, and especially in our synod, it's something maybe we take for granted more often than not that we have such strong, solid Christian education and also ministerial education. You think of our system for a small, for a small church body under 400,000, you know, Lord willing, we keep growing and expanding and sharing the gospel with more, but 330-plus Lutheran elementary schools, not to mention early childhood ministries, which are even more than that, um, you have 22, 23 area Lutheran high schools, and that number is growing, especially in the south and southeast. Then you have two preparatory high schools where kids are encouraged already at the high school level to, to think about ministry and training for it. And then you have Martin Luther College, a college of ministry, and then a seminary, and the seminary is a four-year deal. Uh, you think of how rare that is in Christendom today. Most of the time, uh, the best you can hope for is to just simply run a, a, a seminary. And you take people with whatever background, whether they have, they have no college, uh, bachelor's degree, um, or they have one in business or whatever else they study, and then they go on to seminary training. We're blessed to have our pastors enter the seminary with, you know, generally uh, four years of Greek, two, three years of Hebrew, maybe another language, and then the historical background, that they've had to study world history, um, church history, church doctrine, or biblical doctrine, and then gone to the seminary after that. So, I mean, we're very blessed. Our, our teachers, our pastors, our staff ministers. Uh, when I was back in uh, the recruitment world and just steeped in ministerial education when I was serving Luther Prep, and I would give tours, and there was, there was a tour group that came through, and they were made up of a group of Wells and ELS members, 
They were made up of a group of Missouri Synod members, Lutheran, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and also the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America Synod members. Big tour bus. They would do this every year, and they go check out some aspect of a church body. And they were at Luther Prep's campus, and they were hearing about Martin Luther College, the seminary, and then a high school, and they were just flabbergasted. The ones from our synod were like, oh, yeah, this is what we do. And the other ones were just flabbergasted that we had a synod that would support this work and see the importance of this. You know, something that was long gone in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America generally, and then also in the Missouri Synod at their high school level, not really the, the, the training or, or even in the college to have a, a, many, a, a first career pastorate was becoming more and more of a rare thing in the Missouri Synod. And so to see our, our synod with this blessing, they thought, wow. You know, and then it was kind of eye-opening for us to think, don't take this gift for granted. So yeah, the training. Um, and why is this a blessing? Why is this training and being trained a blessing? Yeah, the waves that are coming, the winds that are blowing, you know, we're no longer going to be infants. We grow and we're, we're strengthened. Um, as it was said, we put on the armor of God. All right, as we consider the Reformation, um, you think of this is not anything new in the history of God's people, is it? Uh, times where everything seems so awful and so down and out, and yet God provides a way. And he builds up leaders, brings them kind of out of nothing or obscurity or the most interesting places, we should say. Story of Esther. Esther was a woman who was an orphan, raised by her uncle Mordecai and wife. And then um, because what was a characteristic of her that stood out? She was very beautiful. And people took notice and they said to the king who was on the hunt for a new wife, and he, she was taken into this group of women, a harem, so to speak, um, where there were many, kind of like a Miss America pageant, but maybe probably even more than 50 states represented. Um, and uh, it sounds, you know, it was, it's unreal, but, you know, this is where she was. And out of all those women, you know, be, wins the approval of the, the workers, of the people in charge of the harem, and, and she becomes the queen. Um, but the king does not know her background or her, or, you know, her nationality, so to speak, or religious affiliation. You think he might, but judging by the, the king, you know, Xerxes, we know that maybe that wasn't most important to him. Uh, but the Haman hated the Jews and orchestrated that they be stamped out, snuffed out on one day, and he was orchestrating this, cast a lot to see what day it would be, which actually gave them time, which was a blessing. Um, but Mordecai, Uncle Mordecai came and told Esther of all that was going on and then said, can you go talk to the king? Well, if you talk to the king, he would have to raise his scepter. If you came in unannounced, you know, and they, he'd have to raise your, his scepter and approve you. Otherwise, what would happen to you? Yeah, Jeff? You'd executed. You know, you think they were a little worried about assassination attempts and things like that. Yeah. Um, so you'd be executed. You know, so this was a very real risk for Esther. Um, and, you know, probably, you know, is this the only way we can do this? Mordecai says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. How did God use Esther to help his people? Yeah, he allowed her to, be, to rise to such a position, to be an influence and to have that, to be able to approach the king and in, a, in an interesting and wise way and so that he would be positively disposed and then would side with her. Um, did Esther want to be in this spot? No. No, she, she didn't want to be. She didn't want to be. Um, but God used her to rescue his people. And they were even able to avenge themselves, so to speak, by the law on their enemies who had been persecuting them and, and trying to shut them down. Um, they didn't touch any of the plunder, but they were able to have a lot more freedom in the exercise of their following the Lord. Genesis 50, verse 19 to 20, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. How did God use Joseph to help God's people? Excellent. He really kind of saved the world, the known world around that area. Everybody was coming down to Egypt, and they, first they were trading money, 
And then when the food ran out, they were trading their cattle. And then they were trading their land and their very lives. You know, so really, this was everyone was indebted to Egypt. James, excellent answer. And then also, God's people were saved and brought down to Egypt to live in a spacious land and to go from, what, a, a number of 70, 71 to, what, 2 million by the time they left, a few hundred years later. Galatians 4, verse 4. Let's read it together. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. What would you say about God's timing as he continually works to save and care for his people? Perfect, yeah. Perfect timing. Do we always, un- do we always see it as perfect? No. Oftentimes, you know, we think, you know, is God slow in keeping his promise? And scripture tells us no. Maybe it feels like it to us, you know, with our impatience and not quite understanding all the things that need to come into play. But you think, when do we hear this passage? When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. We're going to hear it. And yeah, Christmas. Yeah. You know, and just how everything worked out perfectly for everything to happen just as God had predicted in the prophecies, and God delivered his son into the world for us. A little bit of Luther for today, for uh, one of his advent um, in 1533. We should be careful not to follow our eyes. We should rather close our eyes and open our ears and hear the word. What is Luther saying? Yeah. You know, just what we've been seeing in all these different cases where, you know, it's impossible or how could this ever work out or how is this going to, you know, work out for us or for Christendom and yet God was working. Uh, He said, don't look at what you can see. Close your eyes and listen to God's promises and work. Someone brought up uh, in the earlier session uh, Mordecai's words. You know, what does he say? Oops. He says, for you, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. You know, he knew God had made the promise and it was going to work out. But, you know, Mordecai was like, wouldn't it be nice if we could also be saved in this? You know, and, and I think there's a way. You know, so, you know, that, oops, that let's close our eyes and open our ears and hear the word and trust God and his promises. Okay, we're going to go through quite a bit of history here, so buckle up, Right? So pre-Reformation history, you know, we know Jesus died 30, 33 A.D. He was 33 years old, and he's crucified. Um, they check to make sure he's dead. They stick a spear in his side, and blood and water flow out. And, and who are the people, extra credit, who are the people who asked for his body and took it down? Simon Cyrene carried the cross. Nicodemus and... Joseph of Arimathea, and Joseph of Arimathea was the one that, you know, gave his unused tomb, um, hadn't been used yet, you know, a rich person, very rich, uh, to, to have the body be laid there in the tomb. Uh, he's there for Friday, Saturday, then Sunday morning, what happens? Victory, yeah, Herb, he, yeah, he's not here, he's risen, just as he said. He rises from the grave, shows himself to many people. Uh, Thomas has to touch his hands and put his hand in his side because he made that, you know, I'm not going to believe if I, unless I do this. And sure enough, Jesus appears, and yep, he's got to do that. Stays with them, teaches for 40 days. He says, wait where until the counselor comes? Well, he says, go to Galilee to meet with me. But he says, Aaron, wait in Jerusalem. Ten days later after he ascends, and then ten days later, the Holy Spirit does come on them. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. They go out, you know, all these people in Jerusalem. They go back. They share the gospel. Then a persecution breaks out from the Jews. Who is the, the spearhead of, or one of the spearheaders of this persecution? A man named Jameis? Saul. Saul. Yeah, excellent. Way to use the, you know, his Jewish name. Saul. And he, um, he gets permission to go and search out Christians wherever they might be. Lots of people leave Jerusalem. Lots of Christians leave Jerusalem at this time. The apostles are the ones left. And Saul is going out, but the Lord uses him, turns him, converts him, shows him his mercy, and says, go out and be my, my witness. And the gospel goes out. Uh, then persecution really starts. You know, it's election day, so we think, 
you know, what a blessing it is to live in a country where we have these freedoms and we can speak the gospel uh, without worry about people coming and burning down the church. Uh, but in Paul's day, you know, A.D. 64, Nero comes to power and soon finds a nice scapegoat, a nice target in the Christians. And he, uh, you know, I think he's the one who crucifies them in his garden, bathes them in oil, and then lights them on fire. You know, this is a disturbed man and one who's persecuting the truth. So empire-wide persecution. It's not just from the Jews. It's empire-wide. Uh, ten bloody persecutions over the next 250 years. Emperor Constantine, about 300, 313 A.D., uh, converts to Christianity. Now it's the national religion, empire-wide, which, you know, how many were actually then Christians or were just kind of taking the name, putting a cross on their door and, and selling stuff? You know, but we're thankful that the gospel is free recourse. But around this time, they figure about 10 million Christians, so how quickly the gospel spreads even in times of persecution. Um, How will the devil attack the church next now that, you know, they're not going to be thrown into the Colosseum? Well, period of internal conflict. Attack doctrine. Attack the doctrine of who Jesus is. The Arian controversy. Arius denies the deity of Christ and thus the Trinity. People like Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, trace their lineage back to Arius. Arius, that that, uh, actually gains pretty decent following. They even have hymns and things like that, which the early church will then try and stamp out because they were leading people away from Christ and they had false doctrine. Council of Nicaea, called by Constantine in 325 AD, adopts a slightly longer confession of faith that spells out more and more that Jesus is true God. What do we call that creed? Nicene Creed. You know, and it took place in the Council of Nicaea. Um, one of the foremost defenders of the truth is a man by the name of Athanasius. Now we know him as Saint Athanasius. And actually then a creed will come out in the 5th century named after him because of his struggle with Arius. Um, lots of stories about that, but we'll continue our plow. There's uh, Arius, you know, a leader in the church. Athanasius, a leader in the church. You know, so the, the schism is within. Period of internal conflict continues. Now it goes to the Pelagian controversy. Pelagius denies the doctrine of original sin. Isn't that a nice thought? You know, we all have free will. You hear that nowadays? Christian radio, people trying to help each other. You know, we all have free will. And as Bible-believing Christians, we would say, absolutely not. We don't have free will. We have a bound will. We have a will that only knows to, to do awful things and to hate God, and that's dead and blind in sin. Only through the gospel, only by the work of the Holy Spirit, we have a new person inside of us. And scripture constantly, especially in Paul's letters, you know, put on the new self, created to be like God and true righteousness and holiness. Uh, People will talk about, you know, well, you you were created in the image of God. And that's true. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. But what happened in the fall? What was lost? The image of God. But you hear it all on the radio, you know, you were created in the image of God. And so what we have to do is we kind of have to define that and say, well, yes, but we lost that image, and it's only partially restored in the new person in us. But there's going to be a constant battle. And realize that we were born corrupt. We were born dead in sin. Um, So this was a very bad controversy because then it put on Christians to work their way to heaven. Roman Catholicism owes much of its false doctrine to this false doctrine false doctrine of Pelagius. We would say they're semi-Pelagian in that you like, they know that you're born with original sin, but, you know, baptism takes care of that. Now you get to work, and you've got to work your way to heaven, or you've got to complete these certain things or make satisfaction for your sin, which is why indulgences sold like hotcakes, you know, or like Baccarat donuts, you know, because if, if this is the way to, to do it, you know, then we're going to, then it's the easy way. Uh, Augustine defends the faith and insists scriptures say we are altogether incapable of good and are salvation solely to God's grace. Luther will often quote St. Augustine because this was the big battle that was still going on in Luther's day. Rise to power of the papacy. And when this is going on, also a ton of false doctrines are going to be ushered in with this. And we know from scripture more and more that the papacy, the office of the papacy is the Antichrist. There are many Antichrists, but this one is the big one uh, that sets itself up in God's church What's maybe an example of another false doctrine that's being promoted or acceptable now? Um, the Pope just declared homosexual unions are, you know, okay or better than, or better than same-sex marriage, you know. So this is just part and parcel to this. Uh, some really other bad ones, a celibacy of priests, um, you know, indulgences, this works righteousness. 
Uh, ministers of larger congregations, it happened gradually. These things don't often happen overnight, but, you know, bigger congregations, those bishops, those pastors, priests, became more influential over the ones in their area and then took on more and more influence the farther they went out. And then you got two big ones, Rome and Constantinople. Both want to be supreme. So now it's a power struggle. This is the first major split in Christendom. There's a lot of excommunicating going on back and forth. And then finally, uh, Rome and Constantinople break apart. Now you have the Eastern Orthodox Church, and then you have the, the Holy Roman Empire and the Roman Catholic Church. Um, 600 AD, also you got going on the Mohammedan conquest. They're rising in power and trying to take over more lands. Christian churches are destroyed. So, you know, this is looking worse and worse. Period of darkness. What's worse now with the rise of the papacy is that the Bible is going further. Why do you need the Bible if the Pope can tell you what to believe? Or the bishops are going to tell you? Or everything is traced back to Peter. Now it's the apostolic faith, kind of in the sense that you have to trust whoever your priest is because they get their power from the Pope who gets it from Peter. You know, it's not going back to Christ, really. Um, Traditions, decrees of church councils, pronouncements of the Pope take its place, giving rise to such teachings as celibacy of priests and nuns, adoration of the Virgin Mary, purgatory. What was purgatory? Purgatory. Yeah. Because if you haven't done enough, you got to have a place to go because you don't want to go to hell, but you're not worthy to go to heaven, clearly. So you got to have a place where you spend a few million years and, and suffer a little bit, but not quite as bad as hell. But then you get to go to heaven. You know, but that goes with that works righteous thing. It's a place totally made up. Um, salvation by works. Corruption and immorality in the church. You know, many knew this was going on. Many were appalled by this. Um, and Luther would see it firsthand for himself in his trip to Rome. Um, so reform attempts have been going on for quite a long time. John Wycliffe had written quite extensively. I think he also translated these uh, parts of the New Testament, I think, into English in England, but really kind of put to the background, kind of put out to pasture. He goes, I think it's, I think on his, kind of like his country farm. He dies of a stroke in 1384. Jan Hus, or John Hus, the Hussites, you know, he dies at the stake in Bohemia. His story, 100 years before Luther's, you know, 1517 is the Diet of Worms, right? No. 1517 is the 95 Theses. 1521 is the Diet of Worms. 1519? 1521. Okay, now I'm getting it. Look it up, but I think it's 1521. Okay. Um, but John Huss, you know, he, had, he was given safe passage, promised safe passage, this kind of this diet or this parliamentary proceedings, and he was going to come in and talk about his teachings. And, and he gets there, and he's also kind of ordered to recant and, you know, declared an outlaw and then not given safe passage back. He's holed up for a few months, so he gets sickly, and, and he's really in a bad place. And then they haul him out and they burn him at the stake, you know, because he was teaching reform and teaching, you know, salvation by grace. Um, and he made, supposedly makes the proclamation that someone's going to come 100 years from then, um, you know, a golden goose or a goose to, to speak out against this. Uh, Girolamo, Girolamo, Savonarola dies after torture by hanging in Italy in 1498. And I don't think his... Reforms were quite as extensive as what John Huss was talking about. But he's, you know, he and a couple other priests or monks are, are hung, and, then, and then, then they're burned. And then a lot, of times with a, a lot of times you'll find with a heretic, someone they brand a heretic, they'd kill them either by burning or hanging or whatever, and then they'd, um, then they'd burn their bodies and cut down the dust and throw it into the river so that no one would, like, venerate a spot or come visit a spot because it would just be washed downstream. You know, no one would have... Kind of interesting as you go through that. But anyways, Germany presents a special problem for the Holy Roman Empire. Look how many little uh, duchies or circles there are. Um, you know, there's, like, you've got to keep all those people happy to keep your, your empire in play. So this is actually going to benefit Luther and the Lutheran Reformation because... You know, it's so divided, so splintered that it gives time, at least for a while, you know, from really the 1517 to 1580, or shortly thereafter, where they're going to have, you know, relative, you know, some difficulties, you know, um, but it gives them time to get a clear confession out there. All right, Martin Luther, born in Eisleben, born in Eisleben, Germany. 
wrote against the Pope when he was 33. I don't know if you've heard that, but um, you can ask my wife. She sings that one. Uh, nine years before Columbus discovered America. Nine years before Columbus discovered America. You know, this is all happening. Uh, Mark, uh, Pastor Smith, if you're listening to the sermon on Sunday this weekend, um, Pastor Smith mentioned that it's quite possible that something got over to, you know, that the 95 Theses got as far as the New World. You know, people would have brought news with them. That would have been news, and it could have made it all the way to the New World. Luther was raised in Mansfeld, Germany. Um, started at school at about the age of four and a half at a Latin school, so learning the language of the professionalism, professional world. Hans earned great respect there in Mansfield. You know, really kind of in the peasant class or very low middle class, and Hans was trying to better the family, trying to better their position in society, very hard worker, worked in what the copper mines and then started owning a few mines, working his way up. You know, a very skilled businessman. He ended up being on the town council, you know. And then he knew, as many parents still trumpet today, what is the key for success for the next generation? Education. Yeah, get your kid into the right schools, get your kid the right education. You know, if they're not going to take over the family business or they need to be in education. You know, it's, you know, farmers today even, right, they don't just have their kid take over the farm. They usually go away to, you know, the Minnesota Southwest State or whatever, and they take uh, ag courses or business courses. So they know how to run the farm and things like that. Just, you know, new challenges. But to really be successful, let's get So he knew little Martin would have to be in school. And pretty soon his brilliance will shine forth and they drive him even harder. Transfers to a better school, Cathedral School at Magdeburg in, 19, in 1497. This was a little Rome and relics were everywhere. Yet this was also a school where God's word was read. So he had, he had touches with the scriptures. 98, he's transferred to Eisenach to finish his preparatory education. Uh, Aaron graduated in 98, right? Or 97, 98. 98, so very similar path for Aaron. Um, you know, the little Rome uh, transferred to Eisenach. Eisenach was his mom's hometown. 1501, he starts the studies at the University in Erfurt. Erfurt was an Augustinian area, a little bit more stringent, a little bit more tough than the Dominican area at the time. Um, so we're bouncing around different places, but relatives there, you know, people look out for him. Um, Hans and Margaret raised their son well and did all they could to make him a useful young man and citizen. Uh, Spalatin, one of Luther's friends, and, you know, would be throughout his life, uh, at first sight of Margaret, um, his mom, was amazed to see how much Luther resembled her in his bearing of features. You look more like your mom or your dad, you know. So just kind of fun, you know. He was a human being you know, like you and I are. Good and gifted student and headed for a bright, productive, and lucrative future, a sure blessing to Luther family, you know, a dream come true for dad and mom who were working their tails off to get him through these schools. University of Erfurt, he met two of his best friends, Spalatin and Karlstadt, who would remain close to him throughout his life. Karlstadt kind of a falling out until the end of his life. I think he comes back and actually think he lives with Luther in the Black Cloister um, later on, kind of a fascinating story. Spalatin would become a priest and secretary to Elector Frederick the Wise. Karlstadt would teach at Wittenberg, but became troublesome to the Reformation. A close friend died while he was in his studies in Erfurt. When someone close to you dies, what does it make you think of? Your own death. How are you going to meet God? And Luther knew that he was a sinner, but a sinner who hadn't attained the righteousness that God requires. And so Luther, fearing he would go to hell. And this was wearing, weighing more and more on him. Luther earned high recommendation at the university. Students woke up at 4 a.m. You know, Jameis, when do you wake up for school? 6.20, Yeah, Luther would wake up at 4 a.m. Then again, they didn't have electric light, so not as easy to work later into the evening, not as easy to, you know, so when you had to be ready when the lights came on outside to be ready to study, so 6 o'clock, Lectures begin. Bedtime was eight. He's four years there. You know, probably a considerable expense to his dad and mom. Um, dad had big plans. Earned his bachelor's, 30th out of 57 in his class. Do you remember what your standing was in your class? Like, you had to know that, like, once or twice, I think, to, like, fill out forms or something like that. I don't really remember, or I don't want to recall it for you, um, one of the two. But, uh, Jeff, you were second. Lynn was second in your class. Salutatorian, is that what that is? Valedictorian, salutatorian. Congratulations. Um, 
After a year and a half, he earns his bachelor's degree, which most places would take two to four years. His master's, as soon as was allowed in 1505, just a few years later. He's second out of 17 in his class, so really rising to the top. A highlight he remembered, I think, with the master's degree, they had a, a parade and all these things that happened, so he definitely remembered that. After a three-month break, he goes home. Luther is said to be melancholy and more contemplative during this time. You know, that actually happens to, I think, a decent amount of people after, like, their college degree. You know, sometimes we call them boomerang kids. They come home. They're not sure what they want to do. or They're looking for a job. But this was not Luther's case. Luther was more, he knew he was heading on to his doctorate, and his parents were driving him. And he was more than willing to do that. However, um, he knew more and more his sin, and that was something he had to deal with. Um, Martin chose and began studies in law at the University of Erfurt. Medicine had no students enrolled, so he wasn't going to be a medical doctor. You know, they're not going to, sorry, not enough class, not enough students. Theology, if he'd go that route, would mean he would be a priest and celibate, which dad wouldn't allow because dad wanted grandchildren. Um, So law, five weeks into classes, he returns home to visit mom and dad. Martin Luther would struggle in his conscience over his sins, and the ones that bothered him most were anger and pride. He fasted, prayed, read, beat himself. He found no comfort, only fear of God. On his way back to Erfurt, a few miles out, there's a storm. When you and I are riding through a bad storm, what are we usually riding in? Yeah, as we're in a car. And a car is made of, you know, steel, glass that's strong enough to withstand an animal hitting it often, you know. You know, we take that for granted, like, ooh, this is a bad storm, but you're not getting a drop on you, even though it's pounding your car and you're going back and forth. You might pull over for a little while. Ooh, that was so bad we had to pull over. You know, um, if you're out in the open walking and the storm comes upon you, you know, this is life or death. You know, lightning striking down, who's going to help you? You know, how much do they know about lightning strikes? And, you know, do they know CPR even yet? Um, and so this was life or death. He cries out to St. Anne, you know, a very stu- superstitious faith in the day, and they were taught to pray to the saints for different things. And St. Anne, I believe, was the patron saint of minors. So St. Anne, help me to survive this, and I will become a monk. Possibly he had been contemplating that, but now he really was like, this is a sign from God. I must become a monk. Two weeks later, after a couple of letters home, after a going-away party at an Erfurt Inn frequented by students and telling his friends, today you see me, but never after, after this, never. They tried to dissuade him, but the next day, July 17, 1505, he entered the Augustinian Monastery. When people who you love are suddenly giving away things that are valuable to them, that's a warning sign, right? Many would say that's a, for a, you know, a person that's in a normal phase of life. They would think you know, it's a warning sign for suicide, get them help, talk to somebody, talk to them seriously about it. Um, but here for Luther, his friends were talking him out of it because here he's giving away his guitar, giving away other things you know, that were important to Luther and he loved. And, yeah, I mean, Aaron, giving away a guitar. You know, would your dad ever give away his guitar, Ezra? No. Um, so if he ever starts giving away stuff like that, you, tell, you, talk, to, you talk to your dad. Um, but his friends try and talk him out of it, and really his parents do too, but he enters into the Augustinian monastery. Augustinian versus Dominican? Well, why? Well, we're going to hear it. At the Black Cloister, a new vicar general, Johann Staupitz, introduced an assiduous new code of statutes which included each monk receiving his own red leather-bound Bible and to read it. Probably St. Jerome's Latin translation. Luther memorized large sections by heart. This was in addition to the eight hours appointed for daily prayer, where monks were not yet priests, prayed 25 Our Fathers, and with the Ave Maria. Priests had a more detailed formula, so spending a lot of the day saying prayers, doing all these things, reading through certain psalms, all these things. Luther would actually make himself sick trying to, trying to do all these, and if he'd get behind... He'd have to he'd like block out a whole weekend to like just read through the Psalms six times or whatever um, because that was what he had to do um, to please God. Fasting, praying, extensive and lengthy Bible study, reading, he promised faithfully to live according to the rules of the Holy Father Augustine and to render obedience to Almighty God, the Virgin Mary, and to the prior of the monastery, maybe a trinity of sorts there. He was accepted as a monk. After successfully becoming a subdeacon and then deacon, he was ordained as a priest, so only two years later, Celebrated his first mass, faltering at the point he was to offer up the blood of Christ. That's pictured in a lot of those Luther movies, you know, where he, he falters a little bit. Um, his father showed up as he's ordained as a priest. First time he'd seen him in two years for the mass with 24 horsemen and a caravan of carriages carrying relatives and friends. You know, was his father doing okay now? Growing in influence? And here his son had become a priest, the one that kind of put his all the eggs in the basket of this one. 
Uh, he paid for a banquet in honor of the occasion. He stood up and chided the personnel of the monastery for admitting Luther and not remembering the fourth commandment and Luther's duty to his parents. So, that, yeah, that takes some, right? You know, all of a sudden they're all there and they're having this banquet and all of a sudden he gets up and he chides like Luther's superiors and says, what were you doing? You know, he had an obligation to me. He kind of chides them and he was kind of right, you know, in a sense. Luther now had more time to increase his Bible study he started to teach at the University of Erfurt. However, during the last year at the monastery, his state of mind grew more and more unbearable because he still wasn't finding the peace he had entered there to find, peace with God. He still didn't know that there was forgiveness or what the righteousness of God was. Vicar General Johann Staupitz, Luther's confessor and friend, and the one who regularly encouraged him to look to Christ's wounds for his forgiveness rather than his own self-inflicted ones. I mean, think about that. There were Christians. There was even maybe the gospel, but it was so clouded over that words like this from good words from Johann Staupitz would not even necessarily register completely. But Luther remembered them. Um, now sent Luther to Wittenberg to join the faculty of a new university there in the territory of Elector Frederick the Wise. Uh, Luther became known as a good teacher and preacher. Staupitz hoped that teaching would keep Luther busy so that he would have much less time to think about his sins. Also, Johann Staupitz, um, he had teaching duties for Elector, the Fred, Elector Frederick at, you know, the university in Wittenberg, but he was so caught up with the Augustinian stuff and all those going on with that and his duties there that he didn't really have time to teach or maybe even to, to get to the classroom, so you'd use a sub, right? When someone's on sabbatical at the college, what do they often call to, to fill in? They call a instructor, right? You know, they call maybe a one-year call, two-year call, um, depending on the, the field, it might be someone from the seminary, it might be someone from, uh, that's local or whatever that could fill in, but uh, Luther was the guy for Staupitz. Wittenberg, gloriously looking. Wouldn't you like to move there? Kind of very nice. You got the big river there, the bridge. Very cool. After teaching Aristotle's ethics at Wittenberg, Luther longed to teach theology. So here you've got a priest, and he's not even able to teach theology. And after the university granted him his Bachelor of the Bible, he went back to Erfurt in 1509 to study Peter's Lombard sentences. So a lot in philosophy, a lot in Aristotle's ethics, a lot in dialectic. To study Lombard sentences, the chief textbook of doctrine in the Catholic Church. Is that kind of worrisome? You know, when you hear phrases like that, like the chief doctrine textbook is you know, Peter Lombard's sentences. His four-month journey to Rome was during this time. Uh, 1510, in an effort by Staupitz and others to bring union between Rome and the Augustinians. And this is where Luther does, you know, the in Rome where you have that, you know, it's pictured he's kneeling at every step and going up and saying our fathers. And, and kind of the, just the, the like, the, the disengagement of the local priests and the sins they were involved in. He's like, what, where in the world am I? You know, this is supposed to be basically the new Jerusalem and all this stuff is going on. Um, the summer of 1511 saw him back in Wittenberg to teach. He immersed himself in the tasks of lecturing, preaching, writing, and counseling. Wittenberg needed a doctor of theology to fulfill Staupitz's duties there. So now they need a full-fledged replacement. Uh, October of 1512, other, after four other doctorates had been given out, Martin had to go to the elector for the money to pay the fee for his promotion to doctor. You know, he'd done all the studies. He was well worthy of it, but, you know, you got to pay the fee, too. So... Um, Received his October 25th in a ceremony, he received his doctor's cap and a silver ring. He would forever be indebted to the elector who said for the rest of his life, Martinus will be responsible for the lecture, lectureship on the Bible and the theological fac faculty at Wittenberg. To Elector Frederick, it was a deal. You know, he had paid for the doctorate. You know, Staupitz, it was really filling Staupitz's duties, but Martin would be this teacher of theology, which... What a blessing it became to Martin Luther and to the rest of Christendom. He grew up in a home given too much to the thoughts about saint worship, the use of relics, salvation by works, and the powers of witchcraft. Both state and church stood ready to defend the doctrines and demands of the papacy against the simple comforting truths of the gospel. Martin Luther often said that had he known what this would all entail, he would rather not have done it. You know, he would not have, but... You know, the Lord had him there for such time as this. Questions so far? Yeah, the picture, the picture of Luther studying on a Bible that's got a chain hooked to it in the library. Yeah, a very real picture, you know, and that would have been Luther's opportunity to study the word. But that was what, I guess that was what uh, the Augustinian 
kind of the, the new rules at the Augustinian order were that they would each get a red leather bound Bible. So I know, I read that and I'm like, really? But, you know, you learn, you learn a new thing every once in a while. And that's something that I picked up in, in reading more and more about Luther's early life. And probably there's more to be said on that, but I don't remember what all the say. Uh, when he first began to search the scriptures earnestly, Luther relied on the official definition of terms like grace, like a power that God gives you to do the work that God, um, rather than undeserved love that forgives you. Uh, righteousness, you know, he's going to see that word as a very scary word because it's the righteousness God has and he demands from you, but you can't offer him. Faith, gospel, as they have been worked out by the scholastic theologians and philosophers. So you think of like St. You know, or Peter Lombard's sentences. You know, I think that's the one that really mixes Aristotelian logic and ethics with doctrine, which then just muddles it and makes it very unclear so that you're never really certain about God's love or his forgiveness. As a result, he came to hate most of the Bible's finest statements. When the psalmist prayed, deliver me in your righteousness, Luther shuddered. Pay attention, Staupitz said. You want to be without sin, but you don't have real sins anyways. You know, not to Luther. You know, but Staupitz would look on this and the things that Luther was confessing, like, you know, what are you even doing in the, the confessional? Christ is the forgiveness of awful sins, like the murder of one's parents, public vices, blasphemy, adultery, and the like. These are real sins. You must not inflate your halting artificial sins out of proportion. You know? We might not counsel that way, but this was Luther's day. <laughs> but Luther's conscience was an unforgiving monster. I tried to live according to the rule, and I used to be contrite to confess and enumerate my sins. I often repeated my confession and zealously performed my required penance, you know, the things you're supposed to pray or do, and yet my conscience would never give me assurance. But I was always doubting and said, you did not perform that correctly. You were not contrite enough. You know, you weren't sorry enough. You left that out of your confession, you know, and then it won't be forgiven. The wise counselor probably knew how much his words meant to the troubled young monk. If it had not been for Dr. Staupitz, Luther once commented, I would have sunk into hell. You know, interesting on this too, you know, you think of Luther when you talk about the Lord's Prayer, how difficult it was to pray the Lord's Prayer without getting distracted. You know, in his talk with one of his friends one day or an acquaintance, you know, yeah, I bet, you know, you can't pray the Lord's Prayer without getting distracted. And the guy said, oh, sure I can. Well, Luther said, I'll give you a horse if you can pray without being distracted. And uh, so the guy starts out, you know, Vater Unser, Dare du bist im Himmel. And he pauses, he's like, how old is that horse? You know, he just, it's so difficult not, you know, so Luther knew this from experience too. Uh, then you've got the time in his life, we're at 1512. So we're five years out from him nailing the 95 Theses down. Uh, we're 100 years after, um, we're 100 years after John Huss, um, yeah, now things are really going to start in motion because now Luther is a professor. Now he's being forced to study and teach the Bible. Now it's one thing to learn something. You really want to learn it? What, do you, what should you do then? Yeah, teach it. You know, if you have to teach it, now you're really going to get into it. You really, because you've got to answer all the questions and you've got to dive deep into it. And he's given the time to do it. Um, so this is what he's doing. So he has the, this conversion, the catastrophe, the tower experience, a breakthrough called all these different things, a new theology, in other words, as Luther approached the point where he could not endure his situation any longer, the stage was set for his emergence as the great reformer of Christendom. Something had to give. Keep in mind that I was all alone, and one of those who, as St. Augustine says of himself, have become proficient by writing and teaching. I was not one of those who from nothing suddenly becomes the topmost, like out of nowhere. Luther didn't come out of nowhere. We've kind of been tracing his difficult steps all along. How much schooling did the guy? You know, we like school, right? Jameis, you like school. Ezra, you like school enough, right? <laughs> sort of. But like, you know, now you get bachelor's degree, you know, high school, bachelor's degree, master's degree, study, you know, being a monk. Now you're going to be a priest. Now you've got to go back for a different, like, master's doctorate. And so this is Luther's life. And now you're teaching. So like every day in the classroom of his life, um, I... Though they, have, they are nothing and have neither labored nor been tempted nor become experienced, but if with one look at the scriptures exhausted their entire spirit. Now he's one who had to go through all this trouble and difficulty and despair. Luther the professor also grew slowly to maturity and he finally bore fruit in a new understanding of how a Christian can stand 
in the presence of a righteous God. This is maybe the important part. Luther was assigned a small room above the connecting arch in the monastery where he could prepare for his obligations to his students. His specific task was to lecture on the Bible, particularly on the Old Testament, special printed copies of the text with room for notes. Uh, You still see like wide margin Bibles, kind of that, like big, big margins around the sides. And you as a student would write your notes or the professor would write the notes that he wants to talk about when you get to that passage. Um, Well, many people kept Luther's notes and also the students recorded what he said as he taught them the different times. So piecing that all together, it's kind of like they could be in Luther's classroom. And you could see also the development of his thought as he was discovering these things. Uh, These notations of both professor and students are the tracks, like an animal's tracks. You know, oh, that's a deer. Oh, that's a rabbit. Luther left as he painstakingly resolved his religious questions. 1512, he's lecturing on the Psalms. How much doctrine is in the Psalms? All of it. It's a mini Bible. You know, as as you get to know the Bible and then as you get to know the Psalms, you realize the Psalms have all the doctrines in them. Um, They're highly revealing notes for the lectures that followed on the Psalms, 1513 to 1515. Romans, 1515 to 1516, we're just a year away now from, you know, Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then the Gentile, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. Um, Yeah, just amazing. Romans, Galatians, 1516 to 1517. You know what true freedom is, freedom in the gospel. Hebrews then, 1517 to 1518. You know, Jesus is greater than the sacrificial system. He is the fulfillment of it. He's greater than angels. Greater, And once again on the Psalms, 1518 to 1521, going back through that and, and teaching it again for the next group of four-year students. During the summers of 1513 to 1515, Luther worked on his lecture for the fall terms, first on Psalms, then on Romans. Each time he came upon the expression of the righteousness of Christ, which he was terrified at, he paused to ponder and examine the context in greater detail. So maybe not the church's definition, but the Bible's definition. So what do we do when we hear something in church? What did the Bereans do? Yeah, they went back to their Bibles and they checked whether it was true or not. You know, and, and that's a good practice for all of us to do. Uh, he paused to ponder and examine the context in greater detail. Gradually, to his extreme joy, the meaning came through to him. The passage that unlocked the mystery for him was Romans 1, verse 17. Suddenly he saw that the righteousness by which we are justified is not a righteousness which we must achieve, but the righteousness which Jesus has accomplished for us on Calvary. That is the message of the gospel. And if the just are lived by faith, then righteousness, Christ's righteousness, is ours through faith. This, too, is a gift of God's grace, that is, of God's undeserving love or undeserved love. Luther's term erlebnis was no bolt of lightning, conversion experience on a given date, during a given hour, or in a given place. The bolt of lightning, you will remember, moved him to cry out to St. Anne. Rather, this was the Holy Spirit's blessing on the many hours his faithful servant, Martin Luther, spent studying the word. Now Luther is ready to become an evangelical preacher and teacher. And then we see the gospel versus indulgences. So the stage is set. He's struggled with this. He's found the gospel. He's starting to teach it. And then opportunity strikes. The crossroad what is, is, is a, all those little like posters. Success is the crossroads of uh, preparation and opportunity. Or so, you know, just stuff like that. All those like nice sounding things. Uh, but really, this is, you know, God puts this together. Uh, October 31st, 1517, you see the fair. Who's at the center of this fair? That, that monk up there pointing, you know, with that chest that's about to be filled with people's gold. John Tetzel. So, you know, if you'd like to, during, in our grade schools, often there's the practice of reading aloud. I'm going to read aloud a little section here in the next three minutes, and you are welcome to, sometimes the students are encouraged to write a picture that explains what they've been, you know, hearing, or they can color something that's on the topic. So some of you have been coloring already, that's fine. You're welcome to color during this session if you'd like to, some of our Luther pictures. All right, How the Reformation Was Begun by Dr. Martin Luther. Um, This was uh, published in 1905, the English translation. Pastor Smith found this and republished it in a little booklet, um, which he handed out a few years ago. Um, In the year 1541... So this is a long time after 1517. Uh, Dr. Luther was provoked by an insipid libel, you know, a lie of Henry of Braunschweig to charge once more upon the long-defeated host of Rome. 
And in his reply to his assailant, so it's Witter Hansvurst, he recounts the origin of the Reformation. The following is a translation of the section in question. Luther writes, However, since he pretends not to know who caused this Lutheran hubbub, as he turns it, I will here publicly state it, not, however, for his minions, nor for his own benefit, for he knows the cause much better than I do. It was when we were dating our letters, A.D. 1517, when a preaching friar by the name of John Tetzel, a great braggart, made his appearance, whom Duke Frederick had rescued from being drowned in a sack in the inn of Innsbruck by order of Maximilian. You may know it was done on account of his virtuous conduct. You know, I think that's a little tongue-in-cheek there. Duke Frederick caused him to be reminded of this incident when he began to inveigh against us Wittenbergians. Neither did he deny it. This same Tetzel was canvassing indulgences and sold grace for money, as dearly or as cheaply as he possibly could. At that time, I was preacher at our local cloister and was a young doctor, recently issued from the forge and zealous and eager in the Holy Scriptures. Now, many of our Wittenberg people running to Juderbach and Zerbst after indulgences, and I being ignorant, as surely as my Lord Christ has redeemed me, of what the indulgences were, just as everybody else was ignorant of it, I began to discreetly preach about how people might engage in something better, which was more certain than indulgences. In like manner, I had preached about indulgences before here at the castle and had gained Duke's Frederick, Duke Frederick's ill favor thereby, amongst other reasons, because he loved his memorial church dearly. Do you remember, um, especially in the 1953 Luther movie, he pictures it well, you know, the, the racks and racks of indulgences, which, uh, you know, Frederick the Wise prided himself on, you know, this, these holy, and it brought in a lot of money because people would visit them and, they would get you know, a spiritual benefit from visiting the, you know, the, the fingernail of John the Baptist or the sliver on the cross when added to all the other slivers could make up like 10 crosses. Um, you know, and this was, you know, wow, what a holy you know, place this was. So Luther had preached about this, and you know, Duke Frederick was not super happy about that. Now to, to come to the real cause of this Lutheran hubbub, I let it pass. Presently I was being made aware of Tetzel's preaching horrible Fearful doctrines, a few of which I shall enumerate. For example, he claimed he was in possession of such grace and power from the Pope that if a person even had committed rape upon the Holy Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, he could forgive this sin upon deposit in his chest of a satisfactory sum. <laughs> Again, that the red cross of indulgences with the papal escutcheon reared in a church was as efficacious as the cross of Christ. Again, that St. Peter, if he were present, should not possess more grace or power than he. Again, that he would not divide spoils with St. Peter in heaven, for he had saved more souls by his indulgences than St. Peter by his preaching. Again, that on deposit in his chest of money for a soul in purgatory, such soul would soar heavenward as soon as the money would clink on the bottom of the chest. With all that Luther had learned from Scripture, he couldn't stand this anymore. And this is what sparked the Lutheran Reformation. You know, he writes against indulgences, but in those 95 theses come pouring out some real theology, some real thoughts on repentance from Scripture and, you know, the truth of salvation by grace. Still a Roman Catholic at that point, still faithful to Rome. And John Tetzel might be rogue or was saying, you know, but no, John Tetzel was directly authorized by the Pope. You know, so this starts in this law. Add into what had just been what had just been invented not long before, the printing press, and now it was getting more dissemination and and they're looking for anything that'll sell and people are gonna buy, well, something written that pokes at the Pope, you know, or Pope pokes at the Reformation, you know, quickly quickly copied from the Castle Church door copy and translated and sent out to the Empire. Um yeah, this is going to start something pretty quickly, especially when this is in Rome within, what, a few weeks or months so that you can actually read. Nailed it. <clears throat> you know, in the passage, let's read it together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed 
a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that's the, the beautiful passages that Luther found you know, to just be the culmination of everything he had been studying, thinking about, and trying to find peace with. And this was the one that you know, he realized, the righteous will live by faith. This is a given righteousness by God, you know, by Christ, um, through faith to us. And then we can stand in peace in the forgiveness of God and certain of our salvation, not in the uncertainties of everything he had been raised in. With that, let's close with the apostolic benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Thank you for watching Invisible Church, and God bless your day.